I have a confession to make. A lot of times speakers get up and say, I'm so excited to be here, and they're lying. <laughs> they don't. They want to be at home. They want to be with their kids. They want to be with their families. I can tell you without the slightest reservation, I am over the moon to be here. I adore this place. I had forgotten how beautiful it was. I spent a fair amount of time here. I came down and visited occasionally when I was studying at the JP2 uh, in the Metazoic Age a long time ago. But I have one very distinct memory of Christendom. I was down here for some event, I don't remember what, and in some building on this campus somewhere is a plaque, or was a plaque, with a quote from, I believe it was St. Thomas Aquinas that says, the shortest life is best if it leads to the everlasting. And I remember reading that thinking, huh, I guess that's true, that's nice. Very shortly thereafter, I was diagnosed with malignant melanoma. And um, it turned out I was very fortunate. It was, it, it was relatively, it was early, relatively easy to treat, but there were a few days there where we didn't know. And in those days, that quote was at the forefront of my mind and it was, it, was the, it was the greatest comfort I have. Well, I guess if, if, if 27 years is my life, then it's a short life, but if it leads to the everlasting, it's good. And that's stayed with me ever since, given the fact that I still remember that half a lifetime again later. So just thank you. Thank you for, for bringing me here. I'm so happy to be here, the last speaker of the day. This is the speaker who spends the day saying, don't say what I'm going to say. Don't say what I'm going to say. Please don't say what I'm going to say. Oh, Genesis again. Oh, oh. But I, I think it's worked out pretty well. Because I think, I'm picturing it as kind of like a road trip where everybody's going to a slightly different destination, but we all kind of stop at similar rest stops. We, we touch at the same points, but kind of going in different directions. When I was in high school, going all the way back, I wanted a boyfriend. I don't know if anybody else was like this. I got to high school and I was like, well, high school, you have a boyfriend because that's how, that's how you're happy, right? Because you have love and they hold your hand and they brush away all your tears and it's just that's how we're happy. I, I wanted a boyfriend. If I only had a boyfriend, I'd be happy. And then I got a boyfriend. <laughs> and then I said, if I only had a different boyfriend, I'd be happy. And I got a different boyfriend. And this one loved love. I don't know if you've ever known anyone like this, but he just loved the idea of love. He loved the idea of being in love. So after we'd been dating, oh, about 45 minutes, he said, I love you. Do you love me? Please say you love me, because I love you. I'm saying, <laughs> can I get back to you on that? So I start asking people who should know. I mean, I'm asking my friends. I'm asking people at the school. What's love? How do you know when you're in love? What's love? Oh, love is a warm, wonderful feeling in your heart. You'll know in your heart when you're in love. You'll just know. You just know. Because it's a warm, wonderful feeling. And I'm like, hi, perhaps we haven't met. I'm a teenage girl. My feelings don't stay put for more than like 37 seconds in a row. I'm supposed to base this on that. And meanwhile, he's saying, I love you, I love you. Please say you love me. Finally, I said, I love you. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm a Christian. I love everyone. <laughs> Bless you, my son. I, I don't know. What, what does love mean? And of course, his immediate response was, yay, let's make love. I'm like, oh. 
the word was has been so abused. Archbishop Cordelliani was just talking about the summer of love. That summer was not about love. That summer was about <laughs> rampant sexual promiscuity. And I read an article not long ago that said because they were rejecting their parents' morality, not only sexual morality, but in every area they were starting over. So hygiene. On the Haight-Ashbury in the summer of 1967, the free clinics were seeing diseases that were eradicated in the Middle Ages. The mange made a return. The mange. <laughs> These doctors must have been going, got to read some old books to learn about this. Make love, not war. This is what we grew up hearing love was. Love is a feeling. Love is whatever you want it to be. This massive confusion about love. And it occupies our thoughts because we're made for love. We're made to want to give and receive love, but we don't know what it is. It's like if a doctor said, you've got flinkabitis, and you need this medication, and if you don't get it, you will die. Great. What's that medication? I have no idea. We need love, but no one can even tell us what it is. So fast forward about seven years. I'm a senior in college, attending the University of San Francisco. And my school sponsored a speaker series on chastity. And at this point, I'm thinking chastity is Sonny and Cher's kid. <laughs> this, incidentally, is why I stopped giving talks to teenagers. It started with, who's Sonny? And now it's chastity. You mean Chaz? So I was like, yeah, you don't get my jokes. I talk to grown-ups now. <laughs> so I attend the speaker series on chastity, and I am a nice Catholic girl. I'm following the rules. I'm saving sex for marriage for two very good reasons. I don't want to get pregnant, and I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> That's it. And I'm not knocking this as motivation, because it really was quite motivating. <laughs> You're a nice boy. I'm sure it's fun if you say it is, but forever's a really long time was thinking of a climate not quite that warm. <laughs> so I go into these talks. What am I expecting? A speaker series on chastity, right? Slideshows on sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> this is a sexually transmitted disease. Beep. Didn't get that. What these speakers talked about was a series of talks that Pope John Paul II had just finished giving that he called his theology of the body. And what I got out of these talks was that the church's teaching on sexual morality is about love. The teaching is about finding and living love. And all these bells are going off in my 22-year-old brain. I'm looking back at people I know. I'm looking back at my high school experience, my high school friends. And I'm looking at my friends who had been sexually active and my friends who hadn't. And it's clear to me that those who had not, for whatever reason, were doing better. It wasn't just that they weren't getting pregnant, weren't getting diseases, whatever. Their lives were going better. Their relationships were going better. And I start to think, wait a minute. The people I know who were sexually active prematurely in high school, in college, whatever, it wasn't that they didn't have self-control. They were looking for love. They didn't really know what love was. But that's what they were looking for. They were trying to fulfill this desire for love. 
And it didn't work. It was extremely apparent by that point that it had not worked, that their lives weren't going as well. Frequently, they weren't making marriage decisions as well. Their marriages were ending kind of at a higher percentage already. And the thought that came to me was, wait a minute. We have what they want, and we're not telling them. They're looking for love. The church's teaching is about love. We have what they want, and we're not telling them. And I thought, I'm going to go tell them. (laughs) Right? There was no such thing as a chastity speaker back then. I thought, I want to do this. Remember the old want ads in the newspaper? Looked in the want ads under C, nothing there. Nothing. There was no such thing. So I just, it's going to be the good deed I did on Wednesday nights as I climbed the corporate ladder and looked for Mr. Wright. Didn't turn out that way. Here I am. I gave one talk and got five calls. I gave five talks and got 30 calls because there was this incredible hunger because no one was talking about this. The Catholic Church's teaching was about no. It was about don't. Don't, just don't do it. It's bad, it's dirty, it's evil, whatever. And I was so blown away at the beauty of the teaching. And there's so many different theories out there about sex and sexual morality or the lack thereof or gender theory or whatever they're calling it anymore. And the church doesn't even have a place at the table because our teaching is dismissed as just being no. When I started giving these talks, the need was urgent. There was this sense that we, we have to help teenagers make good marriage decisions so that they can form good families. The need is so much more urgent now. The abuse of the word love, the misunderstanding of the word love has grown so much worse. I, I, you know, just despite my efforts over the last 30 years, apparently I didn't reach enough people. <laughs> we conflate sex and love. We conflate attraction and love. We conflate desire and love, pleasure and love. And now, increasingly, we conflate agreement and love, and conversely, disagreement and hate. Loving me means agreeing with every choice I make, no matter what. Disagreeing with you because your attitudes don't fit the prevailing morality is fine. And if I disagree with you, I am increasingly entitled to abuse you. I'm increasingly entitled to go after your livelihood, even to physically abuse you. The misunderstanding of love has become a misunderstanding of hate, and I don't know if you're as tired of that word as I am. That's hate, dude. I don't know, I just disagree with you. Can we talk about it? That's hate, hater, hater, you're a hater. We urgently need to figure out what real love is, and we need the next generation to understand it what love is, what it means, what the ramifications are, how we live it in our lives. So we turn back to the message I heard that day, or that series of days, that series of talks on John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And to do that, we go back to Genesis, which by my count, I'm the fourth speaker today to do that. But how are you going to talk about marriage without without going back to Genesis? You recall, I don't know if you read Genesis on a regular basis, God created the sun and the moon, and it was good, right? The day and the night, and it was good. The blonde, the blonde, it was good. The blonde, the blonde, it was good. And then Adam, he created Adam, and it was very good. How come 
Everything else is just normal good, and Adam's very good. Look at how God created Adam. He molded him from the clay, and he breathed into him. Remember that? I was saying this in a talk once. There was a little kid up front who just looked horrified. I said, you're picturing a dirt man, aren't you? And he went, well, Adam's a dirt man. (laughs) Adam has the breath of God in him. He has the life of God in him. And as you've heard a couple of times today, that makes him different from the rest of creation. This is, in the theology of the body, what John Paul II calls the original solitude. Adam is fundamentally different from the rest of creation. And he realizes that in the naming of the animals. He's going through all the animals and naming them. He has dominion over them. He has the authority to, ma- to name them. And he finds none like himself. He's, he realizes he's fundamentally different than the animals, and he longs for another like himself. It's kind of like a single people. Your cat's nice, but every once in a while you want a date. It's not the same. Adam is alone in creation, alone in being created in the image and likeness of God. Now, why did God create Adam anyway? Did he need him? Take care of the garden? Caretaker? No. God needs nothing what, you know, with being God and all. God created Adam because he wanted Adam. God created Adam because he desired Adam, because he loved Adam, because he wanted Adam to have life, to have existence, and to have good things. Adam is created for his own sake. And this echoes a a document of of the Vatican II, the Vatican II document, Gaudium et Spes, which you all read on Friday nights when you're done with Genesis, right? (laughs) Gaudium et spes 24. Man being the only creature created for his own sake finds himself only in a sincere gift of himself. You can sum up so much of the thought of John Paul II and really so much of of the teachings of the church, so much of the Christian life in that succinct sentence. Look at the first part of it. Man being the only creature created for his own sake. Now, this is not just Adam. Genesis isn't just the story of Adam, it's the story of us, which to me makes it much more interesting reading. Oh, it's about me. You were created for your own sake. You were not created for the sake of your kids, so they'd have someone to feed them and keep them safe and supplied with fidget spinners. You weren't created for the sake of your spouse. You were created for your own sake because God got the idea of you in his brain and said, I I want him to exist. I want her to exist. And I want him to have good things and eternal life with me. This is so key, not only for you to understand for yourselves, but to impart to your kids that they are created for their own sake. They were not created for someone else's benefit, for someone else's pleasure, 
for someone else's use. They were created because God is flipped out, madly crazy, head over heels in love with them and place them in this earth and looks out for them and wants good things for them and wants eternal life for them. The beauty of the earth, Adam is in paradise. God didn't put Adam in a, in a maze or a box or you know, a, the administration building of a, of a communist headquarters somewhere in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. He placed Adam in beauty and he placed us in beauty. And I'm telling you, I'm remembering all that over here. I had forgotten how very beautiful this place was. Nature is the reminder of God's love for us, that he put us in beauty because he loves us and because we are created for our own sake. So this is the first step fundamental to the spiritual life. Know it. Help your kids to know it. They are loved madly by God for their own sake. So, there's Adam, created for his own sake. And what's the first thing God says? It is not good for man to be alone. Why not? I mean, Adam has a pretty sweet deal, right? He has dominion over the whole earth. He has dominion over the animals. Adam has significant real estate holdings. (laughs) Adam once owned this plot of land. It is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because Adam doesn't find fulfillment in real estate, in power, in money, in dominion. Adam finds fulfillment through giving himself in love. Gaudium et spes 24, man being the only creature created for his own sake, finds himself only in a sincere gift of himself. Adam is created to find happiness, to find fulfillment, only in giving himself in love. Adam, however, is unable to do that because there is no other human person. There is no other like him. And so St. John Paul II said, Adam waited on the gift. And those of us who were single say, well, yeah, at least Adam got the delivery in the end. (laughs) I don't know if he knew it was coming, but indeed it did. And the way that came about, the creation of Eve, is fascinating. Adam goes into a deep sleep, and God takes a rib. A rib. Why? Well, I mean, you read theological treatises on that all day, but to me, it just comes down to Eve is made of the same stuff as Adam. She is, is like Adam, created in the image and likeness of God, with the breath of God. And what does Adam say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been waiting for. Another like me. Another that I can give myself to in love. And Adam's thinking, he's not thinking, oh, she could come in handy around here. She could clean. You know, it gets kind of dirty. Adam's thinking, wow, she, God created her and loves her for her own sake. What can I do to look out for what's best for her? What can I do to protect that image and likeness of God in her own sake? Now, I'm sure Adam noticed certain differences. 
Like the, the physical, you assume, was apparent immediately. What with the whole like naked thing. But there were deeper differences that probably that took a while to notice. Like the first time they had an argument. First time they had a problem. Because what does Eve do when she has a problem? She talks about her problem. <laughs> right? This is what we women do. I call a friend, talk about my problem. Then I call a second friend, talk about the problem, and talk about what the first friend said about the problem. And then I go to maybe three or four others and then cycle back to the first with a summary. What does Adam do when he has a problem? He goes into a cave, shuts the door if it has a door, and thinks about his problem. What does Eve do? She's knocking on the door. Don't shut me out. Talk to me. Please don't shut me out. And then Adam's thinking, now I have two problems. <laughs> Adam doesn't come out till he's ready to solve the problem, right? And then he says, okay, Eve, I have a problem. As you'll see on page four of your handout, there's a spreadsheet with a chart that gives the probability of success for each of the five possible solutions to the problem. We're different. Men and women aren't just physically different. We're different on every level, every cell. Our brains are different. And they didn't know this for years. They didn't know that our brains were different because how did they study bodies? How did they study the human body? Well, they wanted bodies that were healthy but dead, right? You don't want to study people who die of disease because you're not getting a healthy, you're not getting the way it's supposed to be. So you need healthy but dead people. <laughs> There's a fabulous source of healthy but dead people in the ancient world, and that was the battleground, right? Cut them open, check them out. They were all men. So it took a while to figure out, wow, women's brains are different. Women's brains are, are structured differently. And I'm not a doctor. I'm also a big picture person. So using my brain as an example, one of the differences is the corpus callosum. It's that thing that connects the two halves of the brain. If there are any medical people in the room, I apologize right now. Because you're going, oh, she's butchering it. But big picture, work with me, people. Two halves of the brain, the corpus callosum, connects them. The, apparently, women have a much larger corpus callosum, and men have a teeny, tiny, smaller little corpus callosum. And the women are saying, cool. <laughs> it's good to have a big corpus callosum, right? <laughs> it is neither good nor bad. It just is. But what it is is that because men have a tiny little corpus callosum. They've got two halves of the brain, and the way I put it is one half is what you're thinking, the other half is what you're working on at the time, right? And if your corpus callosum is tiny, your feelings can't poke through and bug you. But for us, with this giant superhighway of a corpus callosum, no matter what we're doing, our feelings are over there going, hey, you wanna know how you're feeling? I'm gonna tell you, over and over and over. They say this is where women's intuition comes from. And by the way, this is not the theology of the body. This is, this is an extrapolation thereof. This is my own abuse. Because women's intuition is just women reaching into the nonverbal parts of their brain so they know stuff, but they can't verbalize how they know it. And they say women can read faces, read emotions on faces better than men because we can reach into that nonverbal part. They do studies where they show photographs of people's expressions to men and women. And they show photographs to women and they say, oh, well, he's happy. She's happy. She's sad. He's perplexed. She's flummoxed. And they show the pictures to men and they say, he's fine. <laughs> he's fine. 
Choose one. That one may be hungry. <laughs> We're different. Male and female are different ways of being human. Absolutely equal in dignity before God, but fundamentally different ways of being human. Each created for their own sake. And some people say, well, no, no, no. How do you know Eve was created for her own sake? Look at what God said. It is not good for, be a, for man to be alone. I will create a helper, fit for him. Helper, administrative assistant. Come on, woman, help me. Well, I'm not a linguist, but I study those who are. And they say that if you ever, ever worked in another language, words don't translate exactly. Like the Eskimos have 47 words for snow. In, in Colorado, we have two, and one of them's an expletive. <laughs> Different words translate differently, and they say that the word... I'm in an academic setting going, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it doesn't translate exactly. The word that is translated as helper is not exactly helper. Helper is close. They say another word that would be close would be savior. I like savior. <laughs> not for the obvious reason. Dun, 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 I'm here to save you. You are too stupid to be left alone. But because in a very real way, Eve is savior to Adam. Because without Eve, Adam cannot do that for which he is created, which is to love. And in that way, Eve is also, Adam is also savior to Eve. It is because of the existence of each other that they can do what they are created to do, which is love. Then there's that interesting line, the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. When I was a kid, my cousin used to say, well, Playboy magazine's a good thing, because even the Bible says it's good to be naked and not ashamed. And I thought, there's something wrong with that. I don't know what but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to spend my whole life going around the whole world telling everybody. What does that mean? Well, there, there are many levels of meaning, but two of them are, first, the obvious. When you're naked, you can't hide anything, right? You don't have pockets. You got, you got nothing, literally. You like, there is no room for hiding anything. The love between Adam and Eve is perfect. There is no hidden motivation. No, I'm being nice to you, but it's really just because I want your car keys. There's nothing. There's no, no guile, no hiding, no hidden anything. They can be utterly and completely transparent to each other because their love is perfect. Each one sees the other only as, oh my gosh, you are image and likeness of God, and all I am about is looking out for what's best for you. Then there's the, the second and more obvious meaning. Note it says the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. Not the man and his fiance, not the man and Miss July. It's the man and his wife. They're married. Not that they had a whole lot of options. <laughs> Will you marry me? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to wait and see what else comes along. <laughs> They're married. Adam's life is a complete gift to Eve, and Eve's life is a complete gift to Adam. But they don't just say, Adam, my life is a complete gift to you. Thank you, Eve. My life is a complete gift to you as well. They make that gift real with the gift of their bodies. Because as has been discussed already today, what we do with our bodies is what we do with ourselves. We are embodied souls or ensouled bodies. Take your pick. So in giving their bodies to each other, they in the most real way possible give themselves to each other. 
St. John Paul II said that sex speaks the language of self-donation. The language of I love you. I give myself to you. Now, we have to stop at this point and be really clear because this is where people get so confused with making love, that any sexual act is making love. Love, as it existed between Adam and Eve, is quite simply wanting only what is best for the other because they are created in the image and likeness of God. St. John Paul II in Love and Responsibility, which I was going to bring to hold up just because it's a fabulous book and I brought it along and it's, I highly recommend it, although the, the first chapter is an analysis of the verb to use and it makes you want to hurt yourself. But then it starts talking about sex, it's a lot better. But he, in Love and Responsibility, sets forth his personalistic norm. The person is the kind of good which does not admit of use and cannot be treated as an object of use and as such the means to an end. That's the negative. The positive is the person is a good towards which the only proper and adequate attitude is love. That is what is being expressed between Adam and Eve. I give myself completely to what is best for you, to the image and likeness of God in you, to protecting you, to, to looking out for you as God would look out for you if he were here. This is the key. This is the connection between sex and love. I give myself to you forever. Now, what's his first commandment? Be fruit, not the first commandment of the ten, the very first people are going. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's a lot of space and just two people. Fill the earth. More people, more people he's madly in love with, more people to share eternity with him. How's that going to work? God's God, he could have made it any way he wanted. Right? UPS could deliver babies. We could order them online. Drones now. Wouldn't that be nice? Here's your baby. He chose to work through marital love, through the self-gift of a husband and wife. And there's a, there's a Scott Hahn line that I have used for probably 15 years, always crediting you. The love between a husband and wife is so real that nine months later, you have to give it a name. <laughs> love that line. And it has gone many places, always with your name attached. The love between a husband and wife is so real that nine months later you have to give it a name. Generations of people are generations of love, remembering always that despite the, the dignity of the child does not rest on the circumstances of their conception, but that in God's perfect plan, this is how every child he loves would be conceived, within the love of a husband and wife committing themselves to each other giving themselves to each other permanently. I, and, and again, another one of my friends, Janet Smith, always had a wonderful line about, make a list of people that you wouldn't mind spending a weekend with in the Bahamas. You know, don't think about it a long time, but, you know, probably, you know, there are probably several people you wouldn't mind just if there were no morality fooling around with in the Bahamas for the weekend. Now make a list of people you want to bring a child into the world with. 
That's a much shorter list. The meaning, what John Paul II called the nuptial meaning of the body, that the body is shaped for self-donation. They fit together. That's as explicit as this talk's going to get, so enjoy it. <laughs> the body fits together, and it, it orients us to our deeper calling to give ourselves to each other. I mean, first, to give just in the general sense, because that's what love is. Love is seeing the image and likeness of God in the other person, in every human person, in every human encounter. You were created in the image and likeness of God. You are not means to my use. You are a good in and of yourself. And my duty as a Christian, my duty as a human person on this planet, is to respect the image and likeness of God in you and look out for what's best for you. But in marriage, that gift is complete. And what happens is, again, if we want to get Trinitarian, I believe this has come up today, the love of the husband and wife brings forth the new life. It mirrors the love of the Trinity, the love of the Father and the Son constantly bringing forth the Spirit. This is God's plan, and it's gorgeous and fabulous and cool and awesome. The nuptial meaning of the body. Sex speaks a language, the language of marriage, the language of I give myself to you forever. And everything about it is oriented to that. Everything about it is oriented to permanence. Now, fabulous, I'm just like giving my talk all on my own and then going through my iPad going, I don't even know where I am, it's fine. <laughs> that new life that comes into the world has needs, right? Food, clothing, shelter, fidget spinners. But think about those gifts we talked about a while ago. That women can read faces non-verbally, read emotion. When it, where does that come in handy? Motherhood. I had a friend whose her husband's a great dad, except when the baby starts crying. He's freaking out. I don't know what's wrong with him. She's like, ugh. That's his I'm hungry and about to poop cry, which is completely different than I'm poopy and about to be hungry cry. Whereas men have this gift of being able to compartmentalize their emotions because they're the ones who need to take care of the women and the children and primordially like bring home the food, literally, and they can't be out like, we had a fight. I'm so sad. All of our gifts, and obviously there are variations, right? Every woman isn't exactly the same. Every man isn't exactly the same. But these tendencies are significant. Men have a higher percentage of muscle than women. I'm pretty strong for a girl. I work out a couple times a week. I'm sure there are men I could arm wrestle successfully in a nursing home. <laughs> Somewhere. All right, Grandpa, bring it. Let's go. Nature, God even helps. When God created the human body, he created this hormone called oxytocin. You've all heard of that? The bonding hormone. Happens in labor. My sister walked around for two years saying, I loved my labor. And I was saying, were you there? <laughs> it causes forgetfulness. Also causes an incredibly strong bond. Oxytocin is, is secreted in large amounts in the brain in sexual activity. God created everything about sex to be about marriage. Now, all of this was lovely in paradise because among Adam and Eve, the ethos and the ethic were one. They, they were inclined to do what they were supposed to do. But then they sinned. 
And when they sinned, John Paul II says, lust entered the world. And lust is not sexual attraction. Lust is the will to use another human person for my own personal gain. Adam figured out, you know, if I wasn't quite so worried about you, I could get more for me. And Eve figured out, you know, if I wasn't quite so worried about you, I could get more for me. And so what's the first thing they said? God said, where were you? And Adam said, I hid because I was naked. Naked was not a problem a chapter ago. Suddenly naked's a problem. Why is naked a problem? The body is still good. The change is in here. The change is in here. The change is in the heart. They have discovered lust. They have discovered use. They've discovered, you know, I don't have to care about what's best for you. I can get more for me if I don't. And that is the situation in which we find ourselves today. The body is still good. Human sexuality is still good. But it is abused. And we need to restore that meaning. We need to restore the sense of love in every area of life. That love means looking out for what's best for the other person. But particularly in the sexual realm, we need to restore the meaning. Because John Paul II said, the, the body has a nuptial meaning. And trying to confer a different meaning does not confer a different meaning. It confers no meaning at all. Chastity is love in the sexual realm. Sex speaks the language of marriage and taken, and chastity speaks the language of marriage, but John Paul II, there was great controversy when John Paul II said in his talks, and this is the only thing I remember about those talks when I was 17, that lust has no place in marriage either. That between a husband and wife, this is a language of I give myself to you in love, not a language of I am going to take what I want without respecting you as image and likeness of God. So marital chastity in all of its myriad manifestations boils down to in marriage remembering that this is an act of self-donating love, not a selfish act. Outside of marriage, speaking the language outside of the context it belongs in, creates risk, and the risk increases to the extent that commitment decreases. This is the sense that we need to regain. And you, as parents, your role is so important because your kids, I mean, they're here. If they're here, they maybe they're hearing it. If they're in some of the wonderful Catholic schools around here, maybe they're hearing it, but kids need to hear this from their parents. They need to understand this. So you need to teach them. And I do what I can to help. I, I spent a lot of years speaking to teenagers. A lot of years. And we always had, we had a box like that for questions. But I realized that a kid doesn't want to be seen because it's sensitive subject matter. They don't want to be seen walking up. Not that I ever answered like plumbing questions. I always told them, ask your parents. And they always laughed and laughed and laughed. I said, do you think your parents don't know how sex works? I said, you realize that you're here, right? But the chastity questions, and I realized that they wouldn't walk up and put the, the slot, put a paper in the slot, so I would give them all a piece of paper and make them all write their question. And they all had to write something. I told them, if you don't have a question, write Mary Beth is very beautiful. And I take those home and put them up on my walls. <laughs> but you do that for about 15 years, you get a lot of questions. So I took them all out and I answered them and I wrote a book called Real Love. And it is literally 
every question. And I, I wrote it back in 96, but I updated it just a couple years ago so that now it talks about the internet, internet dating, internet porn, all of that. So everything from how far is too far to how do you know when it's okay to kiss somebody to how do you know when it's time to get married every, to internet porn to everything, it's all in here. So I know that both of the book signings are over, but we will be selling the books and I will be signing them after the, um, the question and answer session. I also wrote a book called We're on a Mission from God. Um, John Paul II and I wrote it together. Because I took his quotes from World Youth Day because I thought, this is awesome stuff and nobody's hearing it because it's expensive. Or it's, you know, we're tired and his accent's thick. And so he and I wrote this book together. Uh, there's a picture of me giving it to him and the cardinal behind him grabbing it and sending it off to the great warehouse of papal gifts where it lives to this day. So I'm not sure if he ever really read it. But these two are kind of the one-two punch that I have to help you. I mean, both for your own knowledge and, and for your kids. Like, real love is about chastity and dating and, and the meaning of love. And we're on a mission from God is about everything else. The church, the sacraments, confession, the Eucharist, evangelization, pro-life, all of that. So they'll both be available back there. And then I want to close with the most important thing, which I realize here I'm speaking to the choir. Pray with your kids. Pray for your kids. Those who are our parents have given great witnesses today about what family prayer looks like. When I was a kid, we said the rosary, and it was always, we didn't want to, uh, but, but we did. And afterwards, there was a prayer we said that we flew through, on my knees for the multitude of heavenly witnesses, I offer myself soul and body. I liked that prayer, so I kept saying it after I left home. And I didn't realize until years later, it was a consecration of the Holy Spirit. I've been consecrating myself to the Holy Spirit my whole life, and I didn't know it. We used to, my dad used to come in and say the prayers with us at night, the angel of God prayer. You know, my mother's German. So I always thought, you know, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here ever this night be at my side, to light and guard, to rule and guide, amen. I always thought to light and guard and to rule and guide were two German words of closure before amen. <laughs> like, to light and guard, to rule and guide, amen. Roger, Wilco, and out. Even if your kids aren't getting it, you're, you're creating this culture and this habit. They took us to the Our Lady of Perpetual Help devotions, and we sang Tante Mergo in English, Down in Adoration Falling. I always thought Adoration Falling was the name of a town. <laughs> Down in Adoration Falling, lo the sacred host we hail. It's just what we do here in Adoration Falling. I love speaking to you because you're the ones who care enough, you're the ones who come, you're the ones who learn, you're the ones who read. Thank you for that. Thank you for, for being the families, for being the people who care about families. I know not, not everyone here is a parent. I've already met some who, like me, are single or who are, are married but not parents. Be witnesses to this in the world. Be witnesses to love. The world has so little understanding of love. When we live this way, not only with those who love us, but with those who don't, with those who accuse us of hate, when we love, when we see the image and likeness of God in them and respond accordingly, when we take the love of Christ to them, that's the only power that's going to change the world. Archbishop and I were talking last night about how really it's about relationship. It's about one-on-one. -on -one, it's about encounter. It's about loving. Please carry this message. 
please love. Thank you for your witness. Thank you for your example. And thank you for bringing me to this beautiful, beautiful place. Mm-hmm.